So if you don't know Phil, Phil and his wife Maria are the senior leaders of Tribe Byron Bay. Um, some of our closest friends as a church. Um, Deb and I go up there a lot. But it's so good to have you with us, mate. Um, can I encourage you? Crack your heart wide open and uh, get ready to receive. Ladies and gentlemen, Philip Mason. Thank you, Tim. Long time between drinks. It's been a long time since I've been here. And we figured out it's been at least two years, and that's not good. But um, it is great to be back, and uh, the church has grown since I was here. And it's kind of different to when I was last here. Anyway, it's great. So for those of you who's never heard me before, yeah, a couple of you? Okay, well, um, <coughs> I used to visit more often. Yeah, but, um, and um, also I ate cheese yesterday, and so I just, I've just got to stop, especially the goopy cheese. The goopy cheese affects my throat. I was like, I'm trying to be in denial about it. But um, I need to stop eating goopy cheese at least 24 to 48 hours before I speak because I get kind of clogged. But who loves cheese? Oh, who, who would really struggle to give up cheese? Me, yeah, me. Okay. <laughs> um, as, as Tim mentioned, we um, have a Heart Revolution network. And uh, even though I haven't been here for quite a while, um, it's, we've seen a lot of Tim and Deb. And uh, they've been up our way and... And uh, we've met just recently, a couple of weeks ago in Adelaide, and, and we um, communicate with each other all the time. We're constantly uh, planning and dreaming and scheming of how to change the world. And uh, so it's great to be here. I love Tim and Deb. Just want to honour you guys, dear friends. And uh, all right, so Tim asked me specifically to share out of um, some of the stuff that um, I've been writing in this new book. It's called Royal Heart Therapy. And the subtitle is Reframing the Ministry of the Beloved Son. And so we're looking at the ministry of Jesus, the Beloved Son, but that becomes our ministry as beloved sons and daughters as we embrace the ministry that Jesus sort of hands to us like passing the baton. He wants us to grab a hold of that and run with that and replicate the quality of ministry that he brought to the earth. And that was uh, deeply transformational and uh, you know, you look at the lives of the disciples, you know, he had to achieve something monumental in the lives of those disciples in the space of three and a half years. Because unless he worked really deeply in their lives around issues of character <clears throat> and uh, anointing, but also uh, connection with the Father, you know, the whole thing would have fallen over on the day of Pentecost. Seriously, the whole thing would have fallen into a religious heap. And we probably wouldn't be here right now. Because if that early church movement failed, and if it did lapse back into some sort of sect of Judaism, came back under legalism, missed the whole essence of grace and connection with the Father, this whole thing would have gone pear-shaped and we wouldn't be sitting here right now because it wouldn't have become a movement that would shake the earth as it has. And so the work that Jesus had to achieve in the hearts of his disciples in a very short period of time is nothing short of remarkable. Because he had to get the Father's heart into them in such a deep way, right into the core of their being, that it would bring about an incredible reorientation of their entire being. So that their entire lives would be reoriented around the singular reality of the Father's love. And, and that they would be transformed by that love. And that they would have the capacity to deliver people from orphanitis and bring them into sonship 
and set them free and create a, a revolution that would be a movement that would go on to shake the earth with the Father's love that turns orphans into sons. And so a lot was riding on the success of Jesus' ministry in those few short years. Yes, he was teaching them how to heal the sick and raise the dead, but he was also teaching them how to heal an orphan heart. And uh, we want to look at some, um, some scriptures today uh, around the theme of flourishing. Now, I want you to uh, come with me to Psalm 92, verse 12, if you are very fast. Otherwise, I'm, I'm there already. So <clears throat> I write my verses down. So um, Psalm 92, verse 12 says, The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. <clears throat> the righteous flourish. They flourish in the courts of our God. So there's this theme about flourishing, and, and I've titled the message today, um, A Flourishing Heart. And God wants to take us on a journey where our hearts begin to flourish. And now, flourishing means something is really springing to life and is healthy and vibrant, and um, not like some of the tomatoes I grew last year. Um, I had a weird experience with tomatoes. I'll tell you, I had about six tomato plants all on stakes and um, one tomato plant flourished and it really flourished and the others withered. Now I don't understand why it worked that way but because I had six stakes the other ones all kind of just petered out and I ended up the branches of this one epically healthy flourishing tomato plant I wound up connecting those to all the stakes that were there and that one tomato plant made up for all of the withering um, tomatoes plants. And I had a bumper crop of cherry tomatoes, which uh, we thoroughly enjoyed. And now you've got this theme of flourishing. And obviously it's a, it's a pretty important theme because that's what God wants our hearts to. He wants our hearts to flourish. But there's like in Psalm, um, Psalm uh, 1, he talks, um, David talks about the flourishing heart as well. And I'll read Psalm 1, verse 1. What delight comes to those who follow God's ways? They won't walk in step with the wicked, nor share the sinner's way, nor be found sitting in the scorner's seat. They will be standing firm like a flourishing tree, planted by God's design, deeply rooted by the brooks of bliss. This is the Passion Translation. Bearing fruit in every season of their lives. Their leaves never wither and they prosper in all that they do. Now, this idea of flourishing is juxtaposed against withering. And so, wither, my little tomato plants, flourish by one amazing tomato plant. And so, in contrast, you know, the, the righteous flourish, but the truth is the ungodly wither. And uh, Psalm 37, verses 1 and 2 says, Do not fret because of evil men, or be envious of those who do wrong. For, they, for like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. <clears throat> Maybe that tomato plant experience was prophetic. But the, the, the contrast between flourishing and withering is it's, it's, it's getting to the, the condition of, of hearts. And the righteous are those who have the potential, at least, to flourish. And God's plan is that we will flourish in the house of God. But what does a flourishing heart look like? Well, I'll be honest and say that some of the time my heart feels like it's withering. Would anyone agree that you, sometimes it's just like life can just get on top of you and you just feel like you're not flourishing, you're withering and you're just not 
they've lost that sense of vitality. But there's a promise of this incredible vitality that God wants to bring to our lives. Now, a flourishing heart is a prospering heart. Um, I don't know whether you've done anything on, on 3 John 2, but uh, last week, okay, you did mention it in, in that email you sent me. Um, you did. And uh, um, the Apostle John's writing to Gaius, or Gaius, let's call him Gaius. Uh, Beloved friend, I write that you are, I pray that you are prospering in every way and that you continually enjoy good health, just as your soul is prospering. And a prospering soul is a flourishing soul. See, Tim actually asked me to speak on this because it's in chapter one of my new book and he read it and he liked the whole idea of flourishing and he said that'll tie in really well with what we've been um, journeying in as a community. So a withered soul as opposed to a prospering soul, if a soul can prosper, it can also wither and, and a withering soul, you would say, would be in the grip of some kind of spiritual poverty or lack or depletion. Whereas a prospering soul, there's, there's energy, there's vitality in life. So we have to ask the question, is our inner life flourishing or is it continually withering? Well, if it's withering, there's good news. That is, the righteous are called to flourish. And God wants each one of us to flourish and not to wither. I stumbled on a book uh, in the course of my research around the theme of wholeness, um, which I'm going to get to in this message. And so there's this um, commentary written by Jonathan Pennington called The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing. And uh, he's a, a great writer and he's really honed in on the Sermon on the Mount and he took particular interest in this epic sermon which was preached somewhere close to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And I want to read what he talks about around this theme of flourishing. I don't normally read quotes, but I thought this one was so good and it really gets to the heart of something powerful. He says, There is one meta theme or meta concept that appears with remarkable tenacity and consistency across times and worldviews. This concept has staying power and universal voice because it addresses what is most basic and innate to all of humanity, despite the diversity of race, culture and values. It is a concept that proves to be the motivating force and end goal of all that humans do and think. This idea or theme can be identified as human flourishing. Human flourishing alone is the idea that encompasses all human activity and goals because there is nothing so natural and inescapable as the desire to live and to live in peace, security, love, health and happiness. These are not merely cultural values or the desire of a certain people or time period. All human behavior, when analyzed deeply enough, will be found to be motivated by the desire for life and flourishing, both individually and corporately. So this idea of human flourishing, it is a, it's a significant theme because we're all on about it. Everyone wants it. Everyone sings about it when we sing love songs. Everyone talks about it, but it eludes us. And so we, we're going to spend today focusing on this theme and asking the question, how do I get there? How do I begin to move towards a heart that is flourishing like an olive tree in the house of the Lord? Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus casts this grand vision of human flourishing and well-being. There's a verse in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, which has kind of freaked a few people out, <clears throat> myself included. It says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So you don't hear many people preaching on it, because it kind of 
freaks people out. It's like, yeah, right. I'm sort of <laughs> don't have him reach first base. And so this word perfect, it's the Greek word teleos. Now, while you can translate it as perfect, there's a deeper meaning to what teleos actually means. And Brian Simmons, in his footnote to Matthew 5:48, writes, the Greek and Aramaic words for perfect can mean whole, complete, fully mature, lacking nothing, all-inclusive and well-rounded. And really, this idea of being brought to wholeness or brought to completion is the essence of what teleos actually means. Teleology is about bringing something to a state of completion. And so Pennington, who had written this great book on, on the Sermon on the Mount and human flourishing, translates this verse as, Therefore you shall be whole as your heavenly Father is whole. Now that puts an entirely different complexion. On that verse. In fact, it turns it into a promise rather than a command. You shall be whole as your heavenly Father is whole. You shall participate in the wholeness that He is pouring out upon us as the people of God. That's a promise. That's way better than you shall be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. You know, it's like you growl that at the congregation, you know, wag your finger. You know, it's got a whole different vibe to it, doesn't it? Instead, it becomes this beautiful promise. You'll step into a new life of wholeness and flourishing because of the work of God inside of your heart. So Pennington argues that one of the key ideas, if not the key idea, in the Sermon on the Mount is wholeness. He says the sermon is Christianity's answer to the greatest metaphysical question that humanity has always faced. How can we experience true human flourishing? What is happiness, blessedness, shalom, and how does one obtain and sustain it? It's a very good question. Jesus says, uh, Pennington says that Jesus began his public ministry by painting a picture of what the state of true God-centered human flourishing looks like, the Sermon on the Mount. It's actually a portrait. Uh, E. Stanley Jones, who was a missionary to India, some of you may have heard of him back in the 1930s. He said, the Sermon on the Mount is living. Cut it anywhere and it will bleed. It's a description of a life. It's a description of the life of Jesus, the wholeness of the life of Jesus that he wants to impart to us. And so Pennington, and I keep referring to this guy, but his material has really gripped me in some way. You know how sometimes you read some stuff and it's like, hey, that's really profound. And he says, that the Beatitudes are actually an invitation to a way of being that will result in flourishing. And so he looks at the word blessed, which in Greek is makarios, and it goes back to uh, Old Testament idea of a state of blessedness. And he says that, um, you know, you know, blessed are the pure in heart. He says flourishing are the pure in heart because they will see God. And he, ta- he traces that through. And so anyway, I'm recommending the book to you. <clears throat> if you after a good theological read. Um, to flourish is really to be in love with God and to be in love with people. To love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength and to love one another. The essence of that human flourishing is descript, described by the word love. That's where God is taking us. He's literally getting us in the flow of heaven's love. There's a river that flows from heaven. 
And that river is a torrent of love. And in Ezekiel 47, there's this picture of the river gushing up out of the temple. And then, and then the guy's standing in it up to his ankles. And then he's standing up to his knees. And then he's standing in the river up to his waist. And then going, going out a bit deeper, like measures off 1,500 and something feet. And then, and then it gets up to it, it gets deeper. And then to the point where, whoa, he's just carried away. I mean, you're just in the, in the flow of that river and you are carried by that river. Now, all of us are getting our toes in there and we like what we're experiencing. We love this whole thing of this flow of love from heaven and the outpouring of the Father's love upon our lives. But God wants to get us so immersed in the flow of that river that we literally get carried by that river and we live in love's flow. And occasionally you get spat out onto the bank. But the idea is that you spend most of your time in the river, not on the bank watching people floating by. And so we want to get in the flow of, of the, the river of God that's flowing. There is a river, Psalm 45 says. It's like, what a great statement. There is a river. You know, this will change your devotional life completely. And I mean that. When you come into the presence of the Lord, just remember there's a river. There is a river that flows. It flows from the throne of God and the Lamb. And this water is clear as crystal. And it's very cleansing and very healing and very life-giving because it's a river of the water of life. And it's that flow of life. And so we've, when we come into the presence of the Lord in prayer or just to read His Word or just to sit at His feet, know that there is a river. And know that grace is God's initiative in your life. God stepping in and taking the first step and turning on the floodgates and opening up the flow of that river over you. We just need to learn to position ourselves. As the old Pentecostal said, get under the spout where the glory comes out. And so we just need to get in the flow of love and then let anything that hinders the flow of love in your life, love for one another, love for your spouse, love for God, love for Jesus, love for his purposes, get rid of it. Just let the Lord purge that out because it stops you being in, in love's flow. And so to flourish is to love God and to love one another. And this is what human flourishing is all about. In um, Philippians chapter 1, verse 9, in the messages, Paul says, So this is my prayer, that your love will flourish and that you will not only love much, but well. Learn to love appropriately. Live a lover's life, circumspect and exemplary, a life Jesus will be proud of, bountiful in fruits from the soul, making Jesus Christ attractive to all, getting everyone involved in the glory and praise of God. Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. This is my prayer that your love will flourish. Now, a flourishing heart is supernaturally energized and undergirded by God. It's living in that current that flows from the throne of God. So how do we flourish? There's a promise. God will turn deserted places into a flourishing garden like Eden of old. Happy voices will ring out in the eternal's garden. Buoyant music and thanksgiving will fill the air. It's Isaiah chapter 51 verse 3 in the Voice Bible. And uh, if you don't know why the Voice Bible is called the Voice Bible, who, who's got a copy of the Voice Bible? I was wondering, why is the Voice Bible called the Voice Bible? And then I stumbled upon John chapter 1, verse 1. You know, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the Voice Bible, it says, in the beginning was the Voice. I was like, ooh, come on. Isn't that good? In the beginning was the Voice. And the Voice took on flesh and blood. And I'm like, come on, okay. That's good. I like that idea. The Voice Bible. 
Anyway, in the Voice Bible, God will turn deserted places, that's you and I, into a flourishing garden like Eden of old. See, God wants us to flourish. Now, here's the key. We flourish inwardly through the impartation of heaven's shalom. I love this word shalom. In fact, in the Old Testament, this concept of flourishing is best described by this Jewish word shalom. And this is a very significant theme in the Bible. Shalom is way more important than any of us in this room have recognized. Um, Jesus is revealed as the Prince of Peace or the Prince of Shalom. And uh, one of the greatest blessings of his kingdom is impartation of supernatural peace to the human heart. And so I want to look at this prophecy. It's in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, one of the most famous of all messianic prophecies. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, or Prince of Shalom. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. That's good. Now, a prince. A prince is a royal son. So we could say Jesus is the royal son of, prince, of peace. The royal son of Shalom. You know that Solomon, uh, Shilamon in Hebrew, is, he was the son of David. And he is a prophetic type of Christ. And this is what God said to David. You are going to have a son. A son will be given. And he will be a quiet and peaceful man. And I'll calm his enemies down on all sides. His very name will speak peace. That is Solomon, which means peace. And I'll give peace and rest under his rule. He will be the one to build a sanctuary in my honor. He will be my royal adopted son. And I'll be his father. And I'll make sure that the authority of his kingdom over Israel lasts forever. It's in 1 Chronicles chapter 22. It's in the message. He'll be my royal adopted son. His very name will speak peace. Shulamah. It's the same. It is Solomon. By the way, Shulamite, the Shulamite woman in Song of Songs is the feminine of Solomon, which is pretty fascinating to me. You've got Shulamah and, and Shulamite. And uh, very interesting, hey? The counterpart, the, bride, the bride, bridegroom's counterpart. And, uh, and so anyway, you've got this whole theme of, of Solomon meaning peace. He's a prophetic picture of Christ. And Jesus is going to come one day. The Messiah, the true son of David, will come. And he will be the royal son of Shalom. That will be his title. How cool is that? The royal son of Shalom. In Luke chapter 10, verse 6, Jesus uses this term son of peace. And it's almost a throwaway line. He doesn't expand on it. He doesn't elaborate. He just uses this phrase, a son of peace, if there's a son of peace in the house. And it's a Hebrew, Hebrew term uh, when you read son of, you see it a lot, you know, uh, Barnabas, son of encouragement, the sons of thunder, uh, the son of perdition, Judas, uh, sons of light, sons of darkness, etc., etc., sons of this world. A son of is a Hebraism and it just calls out the most distinctive characteristic of a person. So Barnabas was son of encouragement because that was the defining attribute of, of, of Barnabas. So a son of peace means this is a person who carries peace. 
Now, Jesus is the original son of peace. He's the royal son of peace. And you and I are all invited to become sons and daughters of peace, which means that we carry shalom. We've appropriated shalom within our inner world and we're able to release shalom over others, which makes you a powerful secret weapon in the hands of the Lord because it means that you can actually carry this shalom anointing and release that the way Jesus did. So get this, this is cool. Now, the Message Bible tweaks me sometimes. I love it sometimes. Other times I'm like, oh, that's really weird. Other times I'm like, whoa, that's cool. And in the instance of um, Isaiah chapter 9, I'm like, come on, that is brilliant. It calls Jesus Prince of Wholeness. What the heck? Isn't that brilliant? Or Royal Son of Wholeness. It says his ruling authority will grow and there'll be no limits to the wholeness he brings. Now, that puts an entirely different complexion on things. Jesus comes as this royal son of wholeness, and he's going to impart wholeness to you, draw you into the, the, uh, the orbit of his wholeness, establish a stronghold of wholeness in your spirit that is joined to Jesus, the royal son of wholeness. And we're told that there'll be no limits to the wholeness that he brings, which means you are on a journey from brokenness to wholeness. That is what defines the heart journey of the disciple of Jesus. They're on this journey. Brokenness is the norm. Don't be surprised by human brokenness. Don't be aghast at human brokenness. Don't be aghast at human failure. It's where we've, we're all coming from, but we're moving towards wholeness. And it's a journey into wholeness. You know, you know, shalom or wholeness, which is what shalom really means, is deeper than peace. When we think shalom, I mean, um, in Hebrew they say shalom alechem. Did that well, didn't I? And your response is alechem shalom. It means peace be unto you, and unto you be peace. And so it's it's a de- actually I met a Hebrew guy and he said shalom shalom. He actually said it twice. It was really cool. And uh, so it it means more than just peace. You know, and it, really what you could say is that the peace is the byproduct of the wholeness that God brings. That the wholeness actually brings a, 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 a byproduct of peace with God and a deepening peace with one another. And so wholeness is what it really means. That's why it's very significant what Pennington picks up on in the Sermon on the Mount, that the essence of the Sermon on the Mount is a call to human flourishing and human wholeness. So shalom describes a state of wholeness and completeness brought about through our personal relationship with Jesus and with the Father. We are being healed through our deepening relationship with the Lord. And uh, you know, it's only through relationship that we actually get healed. It's not some product you go out and buy from the supermarket shelf. I mean, you, this comes about as a result of interacting with God. And letting him pour the river of his love into our lives. You know when Jesus says, my peace I give unto you. It's in John chapter 14 verse 27. I love this because when we go into the New Age festivals, um, the first thing we do is we just release the blessing of shalom. What we're about to do is we place our hands on you. Is we're just going to release the shalom of heaven. We just decree shalom just coming and resting upon you right now. And you just almost watch their countenance change because it's literally like... Something just comes on them and it's the shalom. It's the touch of his kingdom. 
So Jesus says, my peace I give to you. And that's not like saying, you know, good day, mate, have a good day. It's not a well-wishing sentiment. It's actually uh, the putting language to an impartation of the Spirit. The deeper reality is the shalom that's imparted, not just the, the, the words that form the, the language around that. And so there is this impartation of peace that comes. Now, in the Message Bible, where Jesus says, my peace I give to you, it says, I'm leaving you well and whole. That's my parting gift to you, peace. I don't leave you the way you're used to being left, feeling abandoned. So don't be upset. Don't be distraught. I'm leaving you well and whole. I'm releasing wholeness over you. <clears throat> now, Paul in Colossians 3.15 says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. The Greek word that he uses for rule is brabuo, if you're interested at all in Greek words. Brabuo means to govern. Now, let the peace of Christ govern your hearts. Remember we looked at the increase of his government and peace. There will be no end. See, God's government is intricately wrapped up in this idea of shalom. In other words, when God establishes his rule and his government, there is an impartation of shalom that comes with that. So we should be looking for the impartation. Never be satisfied with the outer description, which is theology, but reach inside for the impartation. Because there's always an impartation to be received of which theology is merely the external description. So Paul is saying, let the shalom of Mashiach rule or govern in your heart. Let it. In other words, if you let it, it will. There's no striving in this. There's no self-effort. There's no self-help program. It's let the shalom of Mashiach govern in your heart. Let it. Paul is doing a commentary on, Roman, uh, on Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, of the increase of his government and peace. There'll be no end. So let his shalom govern in your heart. It's one of the most underestimated virtues of heaven invading earth is the gift of the peace of Christ. And I hope that by the time we've finished our little Bible study together today, you will be enriched and you will value shalom more than when we started 20 minutes ago. All right, shalom versus stress. You know, stress is an absolute killer. Many people are suffering physical ailments, perhaps some of us even in this room, that are caused by stress. Not only does stress cause sickness and disease in our bodies by throwing everything into chaos, many physical conditions don't automatically heal in our bodies because of stress. So if you're sick and stressed, maybe you're stressed because you're sick. It's a, it's a looping thing and, and sometimes it's hard to get off the, the loop if you're stressed, which is why a lot of um, practitioners will sometimes recommend meditation or mindfulness or something to try and help you to get a little bit more centered and not so shaped by the chaos that presses in upon you from around the world, uh, the, from the world around us. So stress causes disease and stress prevents the proper healing of, of disease. And the medical profession is awakening to this revelation of this relationship between stress and disease. One of heaven's greatest gifts is when Jesus says, my peace I give to you. 
You know, Jesus calmed the storm because of the level of peace that was inside of him. He literally changed the atmosphere around him. He affected the weather because of the level of peace that he carried. And bear this in mind, Jesus did not calm the storm as God on earth. He said, I can do nothing without the Father. He was utterly dependent on the Father to give him the grace, the anointing and the power to do anything that he did. So Jesus didn't calm the storm as God. He calmed the storm as a man dependent on God. That should tell us something. So there's this huge storm came up. Uh, Mark chapter 4, waves poured into the boat, threatening to sink it. And Jesus was in the stern with his head on a pillow, sleeping. Now that should tell you something right there. He's asleep in the storm because the storm's not affecting him. And so they woke woke Jesus up and, and he arose, it says, and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace be still, shalom. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. It went from a raging chaotic storm to instant sea of glass. In fact, the Message Bible said the wind ran out of breath and the sea became as smooth as glass. On earth as it is in heaven. You know, there's a sea of glass. There's no ripple. It's just perfectly calm. What a beautiful thought. I could meditate on that. So he makes us lie down in green pastures and he leads us beside still waters. You know, he's always leading our hearts towards stillness and peace. There's this theme of of chaos versus peace. You know, in this world, you will have chaos. In this world, everything's going to go pear-shaped. In this world, you will have trouble. And, uh, but one of the great promises of Scripture is the gift of emotional peace and well-being and deliverance from the inner chaos that comes from living under the kingdom of self. When self is ruling, when self is governing, chaos will follow. Take you to a great verse. It's in James chapter 3, verse 16. And it's a composite of the Voice Bible and the Passion Translation. I'm not even going to tell you which is which, but I'm just going to read it out to you. James says, wherever selfishness is uncovered, you will discover chaos and evil thriving under its rule. I'll read it again. Wherever selfishness is uncovered, you will discover chaos and evil thriving under its rule. Under the rule of what? Self. So you've only got two options. Self-governance or heaven's governance. Increase of his government means the decrease of your government, his, his authority being established, your authority out the window. You know, the, um, the citadel of our self-government, our personal sovereignty has to collapse under the weight of Christ's lordship. So when self is in, 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 in ascendancy, James says you'll discover chaos thriving under its rule. Why is there so much chaos in the world? Because there's so much selfishness. A self-centered person as opposed to a Christ-centered person will bring epic chaos into their own world and it'll spill over into other people's worlds and you're going to get a domino effect of chaos. But we're meant to let the peace of Christ, of King Jesus, the, the royal son of peace, to rule, to govern in our hearts. That's coming under a different government. That's renouncing the kingdom of self, which is what the essence of the 
the Christ life is all about, following Christ in this world, requires us to empty ourselves, to, be, uh, to embrace the ethos of self-emptying love, kenosis. Let this mind be in you that was in Christ. He emptied himself. See, the very essence of, of a life of love is emptying ourselves of ourselves to make room for Christ. So when we live under self-rule, chaos follows. When we live under divine rule, shalom comes. And this picture of Jesus calming the storm is really cool. Um, in Job 26 verse 7, it says, By his power he stilled the sea, quelling the chaos. That's the power of shalom. David said, He reached down into my darkness to rescue me. He took me out of my calamity and chaos and drew me to himself, taking me from the depths of my despair. Psalm 18. I love what the message does with this psalm, Psalm 18. That enemy chaos, the void in which I was drowning. See, the, the turbulence of the sea speaks of the chaos of human existence. But then, like God speaking, tohu bohu, you know, he spoke into that which was formless and void, the tohu bohu, it says in Hebrew, and he brought order. And so he speaks into our tohu bohu, and he brings order out of chaos. Jesus is the great preacher of peace who comes in Ephesians 2.17. And after he rose from the dead... He came and stood amongst his disciples and said, Peace be with you. Shalom Alechem. And of course, there's always an impartation when he speaks those beautiful words. You know, Paul teaches that this peace is meant to be experienced by the believer. He calls it the peace that passes understanding because you will never be able to figure it out with your mind. You can't even fully conceptualize it it's an experience of his peace you know um, in Philippians 4 he says don't be anxious but pray and the peace of God which is far more wonderful than the human mind can understand will guard your hearts and minds I love what the message says here don't fret or worry instead of worrying pray that's a good word let petitions and praises shape your worries into prayers, letting God know your concerns. Before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness, everything coming together for good will, will come and settle you down. Before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness will come. It's wonderful what happens when Christ displaces worry at the center of your life. That's Philippians 4 in the message. <clears throat> a sense of God's wholeness. So over time, the ministry of Jesus into our lives is producing a progressive wholeness where there was brokenness. This heart healing that we often talk about comes when we allow the spirit to rule and regulate our emotional being. Did you know that shalom is actually a governmental emotion? The increase of his government and peace, it's, it's linked together in the scriptures. It's a governmental emotion, which really means that it's designed to undergird your entire emotional being and actually feed into your emotional being. And so God establishes a stronghold of shalom in the core of your being. And this is what we're talking about when we use the language of the new creation. God has actually uh, supernaturally glued or fused your spirit to his spirit and uh, 
He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, 17. You are one spirit with him. And it's not quite clear anymore where your spirit ends and his spirit begins. Or where his spirit ends and your spirit begins. Because you've become one. There's been a co-mingling, as what the early church fathers called it. A co-mingling together of Christ's spirit and your spirit. Which means your spirit is supernaturally infused with the Prince of Shalom. Which means there's a pretty big stronghold of shalom inside you somewhere and it's up to us to find that place by reading the Bible which holds up a mirror to us and says this is who you are in Christ. And as we believe this new creation miracle and we start to reckon ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in the core of our being inside of our spirit, there is a stronghold that God has established. And I've had a growing conviction over the years that God has established a stronghold of wholeness right in the center of our being. He's made you whole in your spirit. He's brought wholeness to your spirit. He has expelled sin from your spirit. He's taken out the old sinful nature. He's imparted his divine nature. He's made you the perfect righteousness of God in Christ. He's made you as righteous as Christ is righteous. He's given you perfect right standing before the Father as Christ has eternally enjoyed. And we are right with God by putting our trust in him. How cool. There is a stronghold of wholeness and spiritual health and vitality that has come into your spirit. You just got to open up the shutters and let the glory of that flow out into your soul realm, which is your mind and your will and your emotions, and allow the shalom to govern your heart and your mind. And that's what Paul's talking about. When we let the spirit rule... Over our emotions, he starts to bring healing into those broken places. He begins to reorient our being around the experience of the Father's love. And the Spirit is always bringing the application of shalom to every trauma, every wound, every fear, all anxiety, depression, rejection, abandonment, intense emotional pain, shame, and every other negative and destructive emotion that seeks to run rampant in the human heart. We're giving it shalom therapy now. We're opening the shutters of our spirit man and releasing the glory of that shalom to flow out of our spirit into our soul and bring government and structure to our inner being. You ever heard about emotional agility? Is that a topic you've discovered or discussed? Have you been talking about that, Tim? Okay. I just discovered a book and I'm listening to it on Audible. Yes, Susan David. It's called Emotional Agility. And and this is really relevant to you and I, just in very practical terms in our day-to-day life. Part of living under this new rule of shalom is the adoption and implementation of an emotional agility. Now, the opposite to emotional agility is emotional rigidity. Now, when you get emotionally rigid, you get stuck in certain emotional states. Now, we would call that a stronghold of the emotions. In biblical kind of language, we'd say, well, that's a stronghold. It might be a stronghold of fear, anxiety, depression, worry, shame, etc., 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 all the way down the list. All the things that can actually become uh, life-dominating problems in people's lives and really mess things up. And when you get stuck, that's a state of emotional rigidity and Kind of by default, we all kind of get stuck in these places where we become a little bit rigid and we begin to react out of rigid emotional responses. And um, instead, God wants us to be 
emotionally agile, which is a skill that he wants to impart to us in how to actually move out of those states because you can now bring governance to your emotions. You can now bring governance to your mind and governance to your will. I'm going to quote Susan David. She says, A growing body of research shows that emotional rigidity, getting hooked by thoughts, feelings and behaviours that don't serve us, is associated with a range of psychological ills, including depression and anxiety, which are two biggies. Meanwhile, emotional agility, being flexible with your thoughts and feelings so that you can respond optimally to everyday situations is key to well-being and success. Emotional agility is about loosening up, calming down and living with more intention. It's about choosing how you will respond to your emotional warning system. Now, I know Tim has been teaching. He's been up with our guys up north and doing a men's night. We flew him up for that. Uh, also, we were spe- he was speaking with the um, uh, Heart Rev Leaders crew down in Adelaide and, and he was talking about... Um, how emotions in and of themselves are not a negative thing. It's literally there are emotions attached to every experience you walk through in life. And it's just the dashboard that lights up and you, you know, if someone comes running into that room right now with a gun, you will have a certain emotional response. We all will, simultaneously. You know, if someone walks in, I don't know, um, with handing out $100 notes, you'll probably have a, a different kind of response. You'll light up. See, there's just emotions are attached to everyday experience. You're constantly, there's a flood of emotions going through our being. There's nothing wrong with them in and of themselves, but what happens if you get stuck in them? Sometimes getting stuck in a negative emotion can be very damaging and destructive to all our relationships. So she says it's about choosing how you respond to your emotional warning system. Now, Viktor Frankl, who endured a Nazi concentration camp, went on to become a psychiatrist and he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning and he said, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and freedom. Between stimulus and response, there is a space. Sometimes we think there's no space. Sometimes, you know, someone comes and treads on your toe, you might just automatically, you know, but... There is a space. See, here's the thing. Our feelings don't have to be regulated by our emotions. Our feelings can be regulated by shalom. And there's a difference. The space is stepping into your spirit and letting your spirit rule over your thoughts and emotions. Susan David says, Many people much of the time operate on emotional autopilot, reacting to situations without true awareness or even volition. And so she's, what she's saying is that people just go into autopilot and we just end up manifesting at whoever we want to manifest at, um, being grumpy. Um, my wife and I have a joke. I used to wake up grumpy, now I just let him sleep in. And, <laughs> you know, there are default positions, but how do we break the circuit? I, gotta, I want to suggest to you that, that shalom is the key to breaking the circuit. By practicing shalom, it's like insert shalom... Here, right here. See, shalom is a kingdom emotion. It's generated from the heart of God. It emanates from the heart of God and it lives inside of us. There's like a reservoir. To to, to step into Christ in you is to step into an endless reservoir of peace. 
This is a really big deal because it means you've got peace living inside of you now. And you can step into that and allow that to govern and regulate your, all of your emotions of the increase of his government and peace. And all of this flows out of perfect right standing. Righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. He's given you Christ's righteousness. That righteousness gives us peace with God, Romans 5.1. It all flows out of this, of this new creation. So God wants to open our eyes to this reality of who we are and who it is who's living inside of us. He wants to bring a powerful upgrade to our inner lives. And he wants to awaken us to this impartation that has already taken place where he has infused shalom into you. Now, if Jesus calmed the storm as a man dependent on God, what can you bring to your atmosphere around you? What can you bring to your family? What can you bring to your neighborhood? What can you bring to your suburb? See, uh, St. Francis, what was that prayer? Make me an instrument of your shalom, peace. We're called to be atmosphere shifters to literally shift atmospheres to walk into the room as a son or daughter of peace and bring a blessing and an impartation of peace which will effectively calm the storm around us so being a stressed out christian and i know i've been one lots of times and probably will be again i'm not in any way saying this to condemn anyone but it's a bit of an oxymoron we're meant to be the agents of peace in the world and i don't say that to make anyone feel bad but just to simply say hey that's the fact that's the truth we're called to release shalom in this region, in the city of Sydney, in our important relationships in our lives. So we've got to appropriate this thing and then release it. He is our peace. You know, peace is actually a person. It's not a commodity. It's a person. That's why he's called the royal son of shalom. And I want you to stand with me and I'd like to pray a blessing over us today as we just bring this message to, to land in all of our hearts. You know, we've just been hearing this wonderful good news. It is great news, by the way. It's made a difference in my life since I've been more intentional about filling that space between stimulus and response with shalom. It has made a difference. And I want to promise you it'll make a difference in all of our lives as we become students of shalom as we study this beautiful theme that brings about the flourishing of our inner lives because of the beauty of his peace that he's already bestowed upon our spirit so father i thank you for every son and daughter of peace in this place today father i thank you that you have called us lord to be those who release the shalom of heaven everywhere we go into our marriages, into our family, our children, into our parents, into our homes, into our neighborhood, Lord, into our schools, into our workplace. God, we thank you that you've already imparted shalom. My peace I give to you. And I just decree that right now. He says to you right now, my shalom I give to you. Just receive it freely you receive so that freely you can give. 
And Father, I pray for the outpouring of an unusual peace in this room right now. An unusual, supernatural peace that transcends anything that the human mind could even dream up. A supernatural peace that flows down out of heaven. And we can minister that into one another's lives. Father, I pray for this community, that this would be a true new Jerusalem. It's a secret. 